Welcome to This Week in Hearing and our special series titled Giants in Audiology. Oh, I'm Bob Trader, your host for this episode. Today, my guest is Dr. Marshall Chazen, a Canadian audiologist from Toronto, Canada, who has become the Canadian musician's audiologist. And he tells me that he has a, uh, a black belt in karate and kung fu and plays several instruments including the clarinet, the guitar, and and actually the radio as well. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today, Marshall. No, it's my pleasure, Bob. So before we begin, uh, let me read Dr. Chazen's bio. Dr. Marshall Chazen, head of audiology at Musicians Clinics of Canada, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto and Western University in Ontario, Canada. Dr. Chazen holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Mathematics and Linguistics from the University of Toronto and a Master of Science degree in Audiology and Speech Sciences from the University of British Columbia. He further has the AUD from the University of Arizona Health Sciences Center. He's the author of 200 articles and eight books, including Music and Hearing Aids, that is out uh, through Plural Publishing in San Diego. He's a featured columnist in Hearing Review. His column is titled Back to Basics, and also the developer of an interesting uh, app uh, for, uh, for iPhones and, uh, and so on that he'll hopefully tell us a little bit about called Temporary Hearing Loss Test. Dr. Chazen has received numerous awards, including, and if I pronounce this correctly, uh, Marshall, uh, the 1991 Eve Kassirier Award for Speech and Audiology Canada, the 2004 Professional Leadership Award from the Audiology Foundation of America, 2009 President's Award from the Canadian Academy of Audiology, and something that sounds pretty important to me, uh, the 2012 Queen Elizabeth II Silver Jubilee Award. Uh, also, the 2013 Joss Millar Award from the British Society of Audiology. And the 2017 Canada 150 Medal. Thanks again so much for being with us here today, Marshall. And, and I think where we want to start with this whole thing is where did this all begin? And uh, and uh, and and we all have those important things that that happen to us when we're like even little kids and so on. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about where the beginnings were and a little bit about how some of these things began to develop. Well, well I started uh, unlike most people in this field, not having heard anything about audiology. I was in grad school and I still had not heard of audiology. I didn't know what they did or even what the word meant. I thought they worked in stereo shops. I had no sense of audiology. But when I was growing up, I, I like a lot of kids, um, didn't particularly do well or like school. In the early, earlier years, I couldn't read and write until I was in grade three or four. I was very delayed in that respect. I was the youngest in the family and I, that tends to happen. Uh, especially if you're born near the end of the year where everyone else in the class is, is up to a year, almost a year older than you are. But I did excel in mathematics. And I, I, I recall it in grade 
one or two or one of the earlier years being told that I scored in the top several uh, students in the school board in mathematics and mathematical reasoning. Now, of course, that in that sense, it wasn't really bad. It was more arithmetic. And I guess that that continued on for, for a while. I, I gradually did better more on. I became a little bit more mature as a student, I guess. But I always uh, um, was more biased towards the sciences rather than the arts. Actually, it's that may have that may have been a little bit because what Dad I think was an engineering physicist, and and then uh, then maybe some of, some of the arts things came from Mom with her continuous quoting of Shakespeare as we talked about in the past. So that 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 is true. My my mother didn't have any formal education beyond high school. At that time, it wasn't thought that girls could go to school, at least her family, which is uh, unfortunate. But she would uh, quote Lady Macbeth, even from a very early age. She just loved Shakespeare and, and loved some of the um, poetry and the prose from, from uh, the previous uh, century. So I was inundated with that from a very early age. My father, of course, was um, a, a scientist. He was an engineering physicist. Um, and um, after World War II, he started working in uh, various locations. And actually, in the 1960s, he decided that he had enough of engineering physics, and uh, he retired as the vice president of a large financial organization, um, using the same te techniques and the same technologies as a physicist only applied to the uh, economic field. Cool. So... Um... So, so I guess then because of that orientation, uh, you were kind of a a very young mathematical wizard. I don't know if I was a wizard, but certainly math came very easy to me, and I always in, enjoyed math. Um, actually, I, I kind of joked that when I was very young, my mother would tell me bedtime stories of acoustics. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote a little bit about that. If you go to my website, www.musicians clinics.com well both word musicians and clinics.com go over to publications and scroll all the way down to the bottom where we have five or six humorous articles one of them is about the bedtime stories my mother used to tell me when i was very very young about ear mold acoustics and hearing aid acoustics now of course it wasn't really i could have made that up but it could have happened yeah but also uh high school found you as a uh uh, a pretty good swimmer as well, from what I understand. Yeah, I, I did take up swimming very early. I, I, I teach so well. So that was pretty easy. Um, I became a lifeguard in my high school time and, and later a swimming instructor. And I actually carried that on all the way through undergraduate university. And I think the last time I, I taught swimming was my final year of undergraduate. So that's always been a nice summer job for me, a part-time job off to the side. Um, I was also... Uh, I know it sounds nerdy, and I apologize, but I was the president, the typical president of the chess clubs. Um, and I, I did very well. I had a fairly good rating uh, in the Canadian Chess Federation at that time. Certainly not, not at the master's level, but, but it was quite high. Well, that kind of goes along with the mathematics, I think, uh, Marshall, because chess is a very complex, uh, uh, strategic kind of a game. And, uh, uh, and many of us would, would like to be at least reasonable at chess, and, uh, and because now we might not have thought it was so cool in high school, because we all wanted to be uh, the quarterback on the high school football team. However, uh, these days, uh, that's quite a quite a fabulous skill for strategic implementation. 
so you decided to take up some karate, I think, uh, and, uh, it, you know, as a teenager as well. Well, not as a teenager, actually. Karate, I never took up until I was in my mid-40s. And oh, I, I was the chauffeur for my son who wanted to take up karate. He was uh, <laughs> 11 or 12 at the time. And I would, sitting in the waiting room while he was having karate lessons, I would peek in there and say, I could do that. And so I started to train about three or four months after he had started. And our sensei, that's the uh, chief uh, karate instructor, was always very careful about not pairing us together. Uh, on occasionally, uh, during sparring sessions, we were paired together. And I, I'm still nursing a broken rib on my left-hand side because of a wonderful pick by Sunday. But usually, uh, we, we weren't paired together. Uh, when he hit university age, he actually took off and he didn't, uh, he no longer trains in karate. But I've continued it since my early 40s. So I've been a black belt in the last... Oh, 15, 20 years. Wow. Karate and Kung Fu, a little bit of judo and some weapon work as well. Well, I hope that, that we'll only end up being uh, in situations where we have academic fights uh, rather than other kinds of things. Uh, so that was learning to all our colleagues out there. Uh, don't mess around with Marshall because he knows the martial arts. So it's very good. Thank you for so, as if I'd never heard that joke before. Oh, I but, bet you have. I bet you have all the time. I, I'm only authorized to beat up five-year-old kids because the seven-year-olds, they come after you. So, I'm not that good. <laughs> so, so, also about that time, you picked up the guitar as well. Yeah, in high school, I picked up the guitar. It's one of those instruments you can teach yourself. And I remember sitting down one day and learning the 12 chords that are necessary to learn how to play the guitar. And you can do a lot with even three or four chords, seven by 12. And so I, I started to um, uh, play the guitar. Of course, at, in, in junior high school, high school, I was um, in the band playing the clarinet. Um, and they, they, they are different instruments, of course. Um, they, they have major differences between them. Clarinet's not the coolest thing to play at a party, whereas guitar kind of is more cool to play at a party. Uh, you could also sing along with Hard, you can't sing along with a clarinet. I, I thought it was pretty good as a clarinet player, but whenever the opportunity arose, my my music teacher would always shove me one clarinet section back. So second clarinet, third clarinet. I think um, Beethoven has something called the Egmont Overture, three piece, but it has a fourth clarinet part. And guess who got to play fourth clarinet? I think the fifth clarinet. That kind of they they are in the hallway and, and both in the uh, clothes closet. With washing down the hall. So um, I, I guess the writing was on the wall that I wouldn't be the best clarinet player, but I enjoy it. And actually, I play it to the state. I've got to pick up my clarinet and my guitar. And probably a little bit of Betty Goodman and uh, some of those other things going along with that clarinet playing, I'm sure. Not as good as get, I think Benny Goodman, but I, I saw these great clarinet players in the 1940s and 30s are, were wonderful. I'm maybe about one tenth their scale level. Well, um, so that, that'll be a good thing for uh, for some party sometime to see how well we put out a record with Benny and we listen to Marshall play a clarinet. Uh, and but, but I understand too, it's like in high school, you were your your mathematics skills were pretty amplified as well. Yeah, I, I was the typical nerd who went into all the math contests and tried to solve these unusual problems that we used to have. Um, I, I, I remember there was a time where I solved a, an unsolvable conjecture. Of course, I was very naive, and I thought I had solved it. 
and I did solve part of it. I remember my, my math teacher being quite impressed, but when I got to university and took real math, I realized that I'd already solved the easy part and only a small fraction of it. But it, it was a start, and it kind of gave me the positive reinforcement to continue on with math. Math is not the type of field you go into lightly. Um, you have to really kind of be dedicated to it in order to do those constant math problems. And, the, and the, uh, some of the concepts in math are a little bit abstract, I think is a better way of saying it than anything else. But I, I enjoyed it. It was a wonderful way of spending high school. Uh, I wasn't a complete nerd in high school. Well, I was, but uh, not a complete nerd. I, I was on the swim team as well. Uh, breaststroke and, and front, front freestyle, which is fun crawl. I didn't do very well, but I, again, I, I, I was cool enough to be on the swim team. So from there, uh, you moved on to the University of Toronto for your undergraduate studies. Yeah, I, I think it was it was a given that I would go to the University of Toronto. My father had gone there. Um, my sister, one of my sisters, had gone there. It was just assumed that I would go there. And they did have a very strong mathematics department at that time. Unfortunately, it was the mid-70s where most of the professors, English was not their first or second or sometimes third language. And so most of my professors spoke German. Um, some were from Switzerland. And I remember for some strange reason, always doing better in those courses where we had Swiss-German professors, something about the, their language, their speech, I just loved listening to it. You'd walk in and you'd say, we will now study differential equations. Enjoy. <laughs> and it's just something musical about his voice. And you just listen so intently. And, and so I, a lot of the courses that could be difficult. Otherwise, we, I had some wonderful teachers, at least in some courses. And uh, let's see, and, and you even uh, ended up with a mathematics and linguistics orientation at Toronto. So kind of a combination of both of those things. Nowadays, my background probably would have been called cognitive sciences, linguistics. Uh, but back then it was just called mathematics and linguistics. So I did, did take a fair number of uh, linguistics courses in my undergraduate. Uh, uh, my preference is and always has been phonetics and a bit of phonology, but mostly phonetics. Um, I, I'm a great lover of, of the movie My Fair Lady based on uh, Shaw's book, Valiant. And I, I view myself a little bit as uh, Professor Higgins. Uh, not that I, I try to teach Eliza Doolittle how to speak uh, better uh, for her typical class of, of her society, but I, I, I like um, the rhythm of, of language and the rhythm of speech. And in fact, in mathematics, most of my uh, orientation was towards algebras, formal algebras. Now, in mathematics, we call them formal algebras. A language might call them the syntax. And interestingly enough, even though that was my interest, I, um, I, I took my fair share of syntax courses, but I think my passion was always speech patterns or phonetics or sound patterns. And when it came to graduate after four years, I had three options. I could go into teacher's college and become a high school math teacher, but it was the late 70s and nobody was hiring math teachers. But I could have seen myself as a math teacher with my career. I could have gone into my master's of mathematics. And in fact, I, I received a full scholarship into mathematics. But at that time, all the great math problems were being solved by non-mathematicians. So there's something called the four-color conjecture. 
it's it's really easy to prove three color conjecture. It's trivial to do the five color conjecture, but the four color conjecture and you have a map with four adjacent colors that are not the same that that are not the same color uh, side by side. Uh, was not proven. Now, this is actually a, a very important conjecture in, in practicality when we schedule. So, for example, uh, I, I have to take an exam on Tuesday. Well, I can take the exam on Tuesday because I'm taking this course, which is an exclusion of another course that I was not allowed to take. Um, and so maybe they'll put that other course at the same time. So this way, the scheduling would mean that you wouldn't have two courses at the same time. But at that time in the late 70s, all the big math problems, such as the four-color conjecture, were being solved by the upstarts from down the hall, the computer science department. And it wasn't very elegant. They did it, and they proved it, but it wasn't very elegant. So I saw the writing on the wall. So my third option was to do my master's of linguistics, which I, I did choose to do. I was intending to look at formal algebras, formal syntaxes, but then very quickly I realized that my passion was more phonetics acoustic phonetics than anything else. In fact, when I went to linguistics uh, department, I wrote quite a few uh, computer science pro programs. We used to call it programming. Now I, I know we call it coding, but in the day we used to call it programming. And I wrote a text editor to parse a language so that we can do a syntactic analysis. My thesis was actually a simulation I wrote of the uh, vocal cavity and the nasal tract, and I was able to uh, develop a numerical uh, analysis of the human vocal tract. So I was able to change the dimensions and the parameters and to look at certain uh, certain outputs and how they would uh, differ. Uh, that actually became part of my my, my master's thesis when I did linguistics. Yeah, and, and I also understand there was a, there was kind of a, in Canada, you guys have some some interesting kinds of uh, requirements for, for degrees and, and there's a, there was a French requirement that was required for the master's program too, right? Indeed, and, and, and that, that is the case in linguistics to the state, but certainly in the 70s, uh, I knew that my, my future as a PhD would be impossible because I did not know two other languages other than English, and that was a requirement. The linguistics department had accepted mathematics as one of my languages, which was very nice. But although my reading French isn't too bad, my speaking and, and writing French Eh, not the best. Well, it's, it's actually we're very poor. And I tried to pass the French language requirement. I I, I, I didn't. Uh, and I knew the, the writing was on the wall. So I started to look elsewhere, knowing that my advanced degree in linguistics uh, at that time in Canada would have been problematic. My Latin wasn't too bad, actually. And I, I could have used that, but I, I don't think Latin was acceptable um, as, as a modern conversational form of Latin at that time. Um, actually, most of my Latin is self-taught, but uh, I, I, my, my writing and reading of Latin wasn't too bad, actually. So I, I guess I could have done that. Um, but I was looking around, and my graduate advisor said, had you ever heard of audiology? And I said, I don't want to look in the stereo shop. I, I just didn't know what an audiologist was. Said, well, you know, I have, to, I have to tell you that used to be here, what I would ask, when someone would ask me, what do you do? I would say... Um, I'm an audiologist, and they would say, well, what kind of stereos do you sell? And because, so that was kind of a common uh, thread that went through what an audiologist was early on. I would say Canada in the 70s, we maybe had 30 or maybe 40 audiologists in the entire country, with the majority of them being American trained. 
we did have uh, several Canadian, um, well, three or four actually Canadian programs, but we never had an undergraduate in communication disorders. So I was never had the opportunity to to be uh, to take any speech language pathology or audiology courses in the undergraduate, other than the linguistics courses, the perception courses I normally took, and courses that I guess would be called speech language pathology, such as language acquisition. But we never encased it into an undergraduate communication disorders uh, program. So when I was in graduate school, my, one of my graduate advisors suggested audiology. I looked into it and actually it looked really interesting. It was a nice combination between the arts and the sciences. It was a people field. So I, I knew I would be sitting in front of a computer screen the rest of my life, like I would be, let's say, in math, mathematics. And so I, I, I applied to actually several programs. I applied to Purdue in the States and make sure I had a straight date. I, I don't know why they tripped me down to this day, and I usually razz them. Yeah, so I have to ask Goldstein that. Uh, uh, I did. We're along the line. Some... Yeah, yeah. He's no longer with us in Oh, I know. But I, I did mention this to him and, and embarrassed him over a beer one day, and it was a very positive statement. But they, they did accept me at the University of British Columbia on the other end of the country, in the, in the west side of the country. And for the first time, I saw mountains and oceans, something I'd actually never seen before. Toronto is a relatively flat environment. We do have certain hills, but the hills are 30 or 40 feet tall. You know, one of the things that I think uh, develops uh, many of us in many areas is that some of us don't come from traditional uh, speech and hearing programs. We bring some of the skills that we obtained from other areas and, and post those into the communication disorders speech and audiology kinds of areas. And and what 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 happens is that you take a lot of those things and present them into the profession, which which gives the unique perspective and some of the some of the things that you've written about over over the last number of years. Um, and uh, and so but uh, I understand that uh, uh, that while you were at uh, at uh, the University of British Columbia used to kind of play the guitar in the park and things like that to make a couple of bucks as as all of us have to do during graduate school doing something well well, well it is true funding was not a high priority with the program that i was in and indeed um what i had saved up of course and, and how my parents helped me a, a bit uh, i did have to play uh guitar in stanley park which is their big park there I wasn't very good, but we only need to know two or three songs before people <laughs> move on. And if they stuck around, you started to tell them math jokes, and they moved along rather quickly. Um, so uh, it, it, it was an easy thing to do. I also tutored a lot of um, undergraduates in statistics. A lot of accounting students, interestingly enough. My name got around for accounting students. I tutored them in statistics so they could pass their requirement of statistics. Um, so I, I was able to play play around outside of audiology. Um, audiology was kind of interesting. The, the University of British Columbia program back then was was a little bit unusual. It wasn't clinical. It wasn't it wasn't research. It was theoretical. And actually, I kind of liked that, and that's one of the reasons I chose it. So I didn't really get to push any buttons on an audiometer until well into my second year, when I had to do some 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 placements. Um, and giving the background, uh, the theoretical background, the, the, the framework 
before I even got to uh, read about the research, I think was very important. Also, many of the uh, classmates came from different fields. Uh, I went to school with someone that came from chemistry. Um, there was someone from Old English. Um, well, she didn't survive, but, but that's not because of the background in Old English. But it was a very varied background, getting back to your other question. And in fact, in, to this day, if you look at some of the people in our field that are really contributing a lot, such as Pete Gillian, for example. We also went through mathematics, and, and we only discovered audiology in the late 70s, um, and with Laura Bilber at Northwestern uh, uh, University. Um, and prior to that, he was a mathematician. Eddie Belcher, who invented multi-bank compression that we use today, um, is a lot of engineer. Um, Bill Cole, who is one of the fathers of really measurements, uh, an engineer, he brings his knowledge base uh, to our field. Um, in fact, McKillian was the uh, inventor of the insert air phones that are now ubiquitous in our field. He was responsible for many, much of the miniaturizations that made hearing aids smaller. And again, that came from outside of our field. As well as the, some interesting concepts in hearing aid fitting, too. And understand that that uh, Mead and as well as Robin Cox were were kind of in addition to the to the to to your mentors at uh, at British Columbia, uh, they were some pretty strong mentors for you in the development of some of the some of the things that you have uh, come to uh, to present to the field at this point. But first, University of British Columbia actually I have any mentors per se. They tolerated me. Uh, some were afraid of me, <laughs> but regardless, I, I, I did get through, and I, I think I, I did thank them for the wonderful uh, overview education that I received there. But when I was there, there was an article that came out in Longgraph. It came out in 1979 by Robin Cox. I'd never heard of Robin Cox before, and it was a wonderful monograph about ear mold acoustics. And it occurred to me when reading it that the uh, computer simulations that I was doing in my graduate of linguistics about the human vocal tract were using the same laws of physics as the ear mold acoustics or room acoustics or even musical instruments. And so I read and reread and read again that 1979 autograph. It's not very long, it's only about 30 or 40 pages. But I got in contact with Robin Fox, who was at that point in University of Memphis, and, and, and we, we opened up a kind of a dialogue. Uh, this is before the internet, so this was by letter. I know that's the, the old-fashioned way of doing it, but by, by, by letter and occasionally I would send out some computer cards to her. We used to do all our programming on computer cards back then, yeah. and, and I would send her stuff down. She would um, look at it, not really understand what I was getting at sometimes, but she was always very supportive uh, uh, and very nice. Also in 1979, something else happened. We Jillian published the first part of his uh, um his thesis, and I actually it was in his thesis, but I actually didn't publish until '81 uh, when I graduate about to graduate, and I think it was in the Journal of Speech and Hearing Research. And when we Killian did his PhD in audiology, he did it in two parts. One was the electrical part. One was the acoustical part. Well, the acoustical part was published in 1981, just as I was graduating, and he essentially developed a whole series of, of ear molds. And, and he expanded the field of ear mold acoustics dramatically at that time. And we had bell molds with filters in them, which means like 8CR, which stands for 
a bandwidth of 8,000 hertz, now resonance of 3,000 hertz. So the mold itself would give you a flat or etymotic response. Uh, uh, and, and so that was very interesting. And so I, I have at that point, but I did notice he made a mistake in his calculations. And I wrote off a little letter to him, showed him as it's not an old kid just graduating, and he made a little mistake. And, and he, he, he said, no, I didn't make a mistake, but we, we don't want to have exactly a, a 3,000 hertz resonance. We want to have to move it off, and these are other reasons. He was, of course, talking about something called that guy who's but I didn't know what that was at that time. But he was always very positive, very supportive of me. And usually, and, and to this day, uh, I wrote a book just very recently last year called Music Hearing Aids, and Reed was nice enough to write the forward of, of that book. Um, so he's always been very good about kind of helping me get back on track. I veered off track or um, helped to publicize things when I was on track on those few occasions. Bob, I, I'm sure Mead appreciated the fact that uh, you had much more of an orientation toward mathematics uh, than the rest of us would have had that mo most audiologists don't have quite that mathematical orientation. And um, um, Mead has always been, to all of us, I think, uh, very tolerant of our, of, our, of our weaknesses in some areas that is a strength for you, uh, where you guys could have actual intellectual conversations. And uh, the rest of us would say, oh, that sounds really neat. That sounds really interesting. And uh, not, not having half of a clue of what the background was, only actually what the result might have been. But after, uh, after your experience at the, uh, uh, at the University of British Columbia, you took a position at the Canadian Hearing Society. Um, it was an opportunity to go back home, visit my parents, my, my family, um, uh, three, three, four thousand miles away. Um, I think we think in terms of kilometers, so I had to convert to miles just that. That's why I started to get a little bit there. But uh, yeah, I, I got a job at the Canadian Hearing Society. It was an excellent first job. I had a wonderful boss, uh, Tanny Nixon, who allowed me the flexibility uh, to do really what I wanted to do. On one hand, I had to learn the ropes. And I think anybody can do out of school. It's a good idea to work with someone else for a period of time to learn the ropes, to see how things are really done, to see some of the subtle things that come up. And then after several years of four or five years, you could be being in your own mind, at least as a master audiologist, where you can go off on your own and, and hopefully uh, allow your patients to get the best services and most reasonable services. Um, so the Canadian Hair Society is more of a rehabilitative place rather than medical place. Uh, but of course, uh, we did work closely with physicians at that time. So I did learn a lot of the ropes. Uh, I also learned a lot of stuff I had never thought about before. So, for example, uh, Navy Hair Society was always advocating for service. They weren't necessarily in favor or against any particular point of view. And I remember my, my, one of my professors at the University of British Columbia said, well, we're going to talk about a sign language, manual communication, telecommunication, oral communication, oral spelled both ways, O-R-A-L and A-U-R-A-L. And by the time you graduate, you'll have a preference. Well, by the time I graduated, I didn't have a preference. I just didn't really know. I could see advantages of all different ways. And when I hit the Canadian Air Society, at that time, there was a lot of stress with uh, sign language in both communication. And I got to meet a lot of deaf people 
capital D deaf who are culturally deaf. I took quite a bit of sign language as well. Um, um, but but also, and in, in the reason why the Canadian Heritage Society is so pro-communication and sign language was not that they were necessarily pro that, but there were just not enough services for that. And so uh, they were, uh, it was important to them to provide those services to the community. Um, and it was, it was a very interesting place. In my last two years at the Canadian Parent Society, I uh, was on a federal grant uh, on health promotion, where my main role was to go around to whoever would listen to me, um, schools, um, tertiary nursing units, uh, nursing homes, other residential care facilities, and just talk about hearing and hearing loss, hearing loss prevention. And so I, I did get a lot of experience talking to groups and finding out what works and what doesn't work. You can't use big giant words if people aren't not familiar with the jargon. And I've actually, I actually use that in my terminology today. Uh, certain words I would never use are words like obviate. Um, and I'd look at you and say, what, what, where does that mean? So, uh, it was a great opportunity at the Canadian Parent Society. And in 1985, I met, uh, I went out and I got this. My oldest uh, was born, CJ, and I wanted to spend more time uh, with, with her, which I did. And it was a, a very good year. I, I was finding that I could work really about one or two days a week total uh, and make as much as I did at the Parent Society full-time as a salaried employee. So I got a, a lot of chance to spend with my daughter. And then um, a year later, I was getting a little bored, I must admit, um, and she was becoming a little bit more independent. And I ran into this gentleman named John Chong, another mentor of mine. John is a very interesting gentleman. He's um, a electrical engineer, got tired of that when it's in medicine, and, be, and just um, loved medicine. Uh, John, at age 13 or 14, was already a concert pianist and had already reached the highest levels of piano training. In Canada, we call it the associate degree, ARCP. Uh, and he did come down, unfortunately, with carpal tunnel syndrome, so he could no longer play like Chopin. And so he had to go across the hall to the uh, composing department of the Conservatory of Music. And so he learned how to compose rather than perform, just due to his physical injury. When he was in med school, he um, ended up with, with a degree in internal medicine, or he see those under internal medicine. But his specialty are, is actually musicians uh, injuries and earlier on he wanted to set up set up something called the musicians clinic to solve some of these or address some of these musician uh injuries and this was 1986 and he asked me to call it come along for the ride and initially i said no because if you have electrical engineer or a lawyer or a musician is a fine boy is that difficult you oh, really have to know your audio i think all of our colleagues will agree that musicians are a difficult uh, component of the hearing impaired population, and it takes special kind of orientation. Uh, and and of course, the engineers are are right there as well. The person who comes in and says, you know, I think if you tweak this at a at uh, fifteen hundred and fifty three hertz, uh, then I think I'm going to be okay. You know, that kind of a person. So uh, so yes, they're the, they're that difficult group, and, and that's why I said no. But he's bigger than I was. And he got me a little bit drunk and said, okay, okay, uh, let's, uh, I'll come out and look at it and see what we can do. And the first patient I saw was a really interesting uh, patient. He had come in initially with, with rest and arm problems. He was a violinist. He was sawing away at the violin. 
Um, but he also had tinnitus in his left ear. Of course, he's holding your noise generator by his left ear. <laughs> to make a long story short, I was hooked. I, I found that the solutions and the forms of assessment that were reasonable that I could do as an audiologist were, were exactly everything I'd ever learned in audiology. So you had to know about critical bandwidth, real acoustics, perception issues, and how the cochlear functions of what we knew at that time about tinnitus, which was, of course, before uh, Josh Bob's and Hazel's 1993 publication. So tinnitus masking was quite rudimentary, but every element of what we learned in school uh, was very useful. And of course, as I said before, the acoustics or the laws of acoustics in the vocal tract are the same laws of acoustics we learned in our uh, real acoustics class. And it's the same acoustics that we see in musical instruments. So to describe musical instruments or to understand uh, what they're hearing with their own musical instrument, it's those same laws of ear mold, room acoustics, or vocal fact acoustics that we can apply. And I, I actually have been part of the Musicians Clinics of Canada since since the mid-80s. Even today, I, I see certain things. Interestingly enough, there was a bit of a change going on with musicians and the musician's clinic. In the 1980s and 1990s, a lot of it was physical injuries, overuse symptoms, so that a drummer would come in and he'd be hitting too hard on a rim shot or a hi-hat and he'd have wrist and arm problems. And I recall one person in particular um, who read it in its modern magazine, Modern Drummer, still in, is in existence today, a magazine. You have to wear a hearing protection. So he went out and got his father's industrial strength, EAR, home plugs, and started to put them on. And it lessened the level of his playing, but it took off so many monitoring cues of his drum kit. And so specifically, his rim shot. So he started hitting harder on the rim shot than he needed to because he couldn't hear it very well. And that resulted in wrist and arm problems. Well, the solution was to fit him with the proper type of near plug, one of the flat, uniform ear plugs of the air. Well, the ER, in that case, 25, uh, made by a manufacturer called Edemotic Research Millions Company. And it gave him a better monitoring ability of his instrument. At, at the same time, gave him sufficient hearing protection. And his wrist and arm problems went away. So there are some interactions between physical injuries and monitoring the what an audiologist can do. Recently, however, most of the musicians that we see at the Musicians Clinic, me especially, are stress-related. Now, I think we've had two or three generations of students over the last 40 years almost uh, grow up on knowing that they have to wear hearing protection. They now learn about school, whether it's a college uh, or community level, they have to learn about hearing protection and other um, health concerns that a musician uh, may have. But most musicians nowadays are on the gig economy, uh, whether they're street performers or musicians or whatever and they play in the park, whatever. The successful musician that's in the gig economy may only make sixteen or $17,000 a year. And in most large cities like Toronto, that's below the poverty line. So there are major stresses on musicians nowadays that perhaps we didn't have as much in the 1980s or 1990s. Uh, inflation has really, especially the, the rents and, and the cost of housing and food has really skyrocketed of late, and many musicians don't know where the next deal will come from or whether they can make uh, rent on a certain month. So you can't look at a musician 
than just look at the hearing in isolation. You have to look at the whole being. And so a lot of what we do at the Musicians Clinic is stress reduction. Um, now, in the 1960s, for those of you that remember the 1960s, there was uh, big ads in the newspaper, Bob, you remember the 1960s? Big headlines saying stress, the big pillar. And they were referring to how stress can affect your heart, your lungs, your kidney, your liver. But it, of course, it didn't say anything about hearing. But actually in 2009 and another article of 2010, so more than a decade a year, a decade ago, not in the audiology journals, in, in the cell biology journals, the mechanism for how stress may affect your auditory system uh, came out. Now, it turns out that high levels of stress uh, means that your, your adrenal glands will emit cortisol, a stress hormone. Through a complex biochemical process, the cortisol gets into the brain and creates high levels of glutamate. Now, glutamate, we know, is one of the important neurotransmitter substances in our hearing. A mechanism. And it turns out that high levels of glutamate, whether it's caused by loud noise or caused by stress, is identical at the smallest molecular level. And in both cases, calcium ions rushing into a cell, starting or beginning the depolarization or cell death process. So it turns out that people that are very stressed could have things like tinnitus. Now, these are people not with a hearing loss, not like you expect a 70 or 80 year old person to have maybe the tinnitus, but I'm talking about a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old young musician just starting out with a lot of stresses on her or his life, and they have very high levels of cortisol in their body for good reason. Uh, uh, At least in North America, musicians are not well-respected and certainly are not well-paid, but they have high levels of of cortisol, leading to high levels of glutamate, and they come in tinnitus. So a lot of what I do now is to resolve the tinnitus, not just using masking perpetuation, uh, not acknowledging that it's an increase in central gain as it would be with other forms of tinnitus, but more importantly, uh, stress reduction techniques. And now in Canada, marijuana is legal, uh, but the, but and, and that can be useful. Although, although if you are going to get involved with this, I know that 38 states in the United States have some degree of legality of marijuana as well, uh, depending on on their policies. But marijuana is made with two things. The the uh, THC, which is the stoning agent, and there is no benefit to that. There never has been any research benefit for the stoning agent, the THC. But there is a lot of research suggesting that the CBD or the cannabinoid can be very useful at suppressing tinnitus, suppressing stress, helping you sleep deeper and longer, which has positive effects. And there's research also done by one of the physicians at the Musicians Clinics of Canada, Dr. Um, Kath Patel, that showed that high levels of cannabinoid, easy for which say CBD, and that's why we call it CBD. The high levels of CBD of 30 or 40 milligrams per dose, but very, very, very low levels of THC, the stoner agent, let's say two, less than 2.5 milligrams per dose, can be very, very useful. For many people, so many of my young musicians have this CBD uh, that help maybe in the form of an oil, perhaps that they take before they go to bed. That helps them sleep deeper, sleep longer, and their overall stress level is lower. So audiology is kind of bordering now more so than ever before on the pharmaceutical side of things. At least in Canada, it is with CBD. Um, there are so many um, 
chemical earmuffs as well coming down the pipeline that, that we're getting into the book, uh, oligoprotectants. Um, and, um, but of course, with those, you have to be very careful because it's the dose that matters. So I can talk about NAC, um, LNAC, for example, which has been known for years and years with all sorts of people. Um, I, I, can't, I can suggest that they try NAC, um, but unless I tell them what the dosage of NAC, it's problematic. Too much is no good. Too little is no good. There's usually a sweet spot. And so as the research comes out about these oligoprotectives, these chemical earmuffs, these pharmaceuticals, uh, that can be very useful. There, there, there's an article, actually, that's a headline article in this month, Canadian Audiologist. And for those that don't know, I of my many roles, I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of CanadianAudiologist.ca. It's one word. And it's free, and it's the official publication of Canadian Academy of Audiology. And... If you listen to this after the current issue is no longer there, all the past issues and pull it up, but pull it up by someone named Colleen Lefrau. Colleen is a true giant in our field, and she's in the University of North Texas in Dallas, and she's written a wonderful article for us about uh, pharmaceuticals and how that can mitigate future hearing loss, and not just hearing loss, but the things that go along with hearing loss, tinnitus and other negative things as well. You know, you, you mentioned some things about the Canadian audiologist, but uh, I know you've been extremely active in the development of audiology across Canada, and particularly with the Canadian Academy of Audiology. Uh, the Canadian Academy of Audiology started about, oh, about 18 years ago by now, just shortly after the, uh, the uh, but much after the American Academy of Audiology. And I think I would have to thank them because it was some of the people like Dr. Jim Jurger of the American Academy of Audiology. That is very instrumental and helpful us get uh, the Canadian version off the, off the ground. Um, the Canadian Academy of Audiology, as that journal I've, I've alluded to, we do have annual conferences. Uh, we have many position and policy papers. And the papers are, are very, very high level and very well thought out. Uh, so we, we have, even though over the counter hearing aids is not yet in Canada, it may never get out of that. We do have a well thought out, well considered opposition papers on that topic. Uh, we're looking at ones on the relationship, if any, between cognition and untreated hearing loss, which there's, yes, according to the recent achieved results from Dr. Frank Lynn from Johns Hopkins University, there hasn't been much of a relationship. It doesn't show much of a relationship between cognitive decline and hearing loss, other than hearing better will help you think better. That is true. But uh, we have position papers on that. So the Canadian Academy of Audiology is a very, very um, uh, supportive of those endeavors. Within uh, the Canadian Academy of Audiology, as I said, we do have many departments, many uh, wings um, that have various or orientations, such as the stimular uh, group. We have a, uh, uh, a, a small but growing uh, CAPD we have uh, a larger application uh, group, of course, that seems to be my interest as well. Uh, we, we don't have as large of a positions at hearing loss performing artists and hearing loss prevention group as I would like to see, but I think you'll see that in the future. Well, uh, and, but you've also done some things with the American Academy of Audiology as well, uh, giving us some orientation in, in the, and, and probably using those 
mathematics and linguistic skills to kind of po focus us in a maybe a little bit different direction and so on. Well, it, it is true. Over the years, I have given many talks for the various conferences of the, of the American Academy of Audiology and have written in some of their, their journals and, and their magazine, Audiology, uh, today. Um, one of the, 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 the topics that I have presented there several times, which was, I think, Robert C., uh, is not what you normally think of audiology, or you would think of audiology, but you wouldn't necessarily put it together. Um, but I've done a lot of work and written book chapters on the, the how you fit hearing aids differently to different languages. Now, but, um, you have to analyze what is important about languages. There has been a little bit of work on the bad the past with tonal languages, uh, with having more low frequency application so you might have program one for english and program two for let's say chinese which is a tonal language well the tones are very meaningful and they're always on the lower frequency either vowels or nasals in both cases they're the sonorant the, the lower frequency sounds and so an enhanced low frequency and um uh bandwidth of the frequency response the chinese versus english might be very useful i extended that to something beyond the phonetic level, um, I've gone to the level of the morphing and also the level of the sentence. So, for example, uh, there are many languages around the world that are restricted by consonant vowel, consonant vowel structure, Hawaiian, Japanese being another one of them. Uh, in Japanese, even if they borrow a word like McDonald's into their language, they impose the morphology of Japanese onto it. So McDonald's having two, two uh, consonants side by side is a no-no. So they would call it Makono Golodos, if I said that correctly. Or handbag is another example, Hanodobago, where you never have two consonants side by side in that language. Well, what that means though, in terms of compression, is that you want to ensure that the compressor has a uh, very quick release time uh, compared to English, much faster release time. So the quieter uh, adjacent consonant, which might be of a lower uh, sound level, it has sufficient audibility in the system. So that could be one of the other changes. Another change would be at the sentence level. Uh, so English being a subject, verb, object, language, we have objects at the end of our sentences, and we all always run out of air at the time we get out at the end of the sentence anyway, it's quieter. But if we have an object, especially a proper noun with a name, uh, John saw Mary, it gets louder again. But most languages, if we don't have a noun um, or a proper noun or an object at the end of a sentence, it gets very, very quiet. So you take uh, the languages that are subject, object, verb oriented, such as, again, Japanese, uh, Korean, Armenian, Turkish, um, um, it goes on and on. There are many, many languages that, languages that have that characteristic. Um, they have very quiet levels at the end of a sentence. So when we talk about sufficient gain for soft level inputs, we're not just talking about for soft speech, but we're talking about sentence finals in these languages. And so these languages would need more gain for soft level inputs on their compressor, uh, how we set them up then for English. So if we had a bilingual. You know, I even see, uh, 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 Marshall, I even see now some of the, some of the hearing aid uh, software is actually asked some questions about um, uh, is this total, what language is the individual speaking almost? There's a 
couple of the manufacturer software uh, that seem to do that now. That is true. And that's because of my work and my working yeah. uh, with them. It's, it, so you don't have to really listen to what I just said or understand what I just said, but you just have to Turkish and we're automatically uh, give you more gain or soft level inputs being sentenced Bible inputs. So that, that's some of the stuff I, I, I present mostly at the American Academy of Audiology have written about them. There's actually one thing that's very interesting that just happened uh, earlier this morning. Um, I, I, I have written in the past about musical roads. Now, this isn't really audiology 101. It's even before audiology 101. This is something that in junior high school, where high school kids can do the calculations once they take their first science course about the physics of sound. Um, there are musical roads all over our world where grooves are in the pavement are drilled into or parked into roads. Yeah, and I think you just did this for the Munich airport, as I recall. Exactly. So uh, these are cars going 100 kilometers an hour in the state, 60 miles an hour, and it plays a certain song. And so the Munich airport boats me um, for Oktoberfest celebration, and there's a pathway now that leads from Terminal 1 to Terminal 2 at the Munich airport where you could drag your uh, your bag, your uh, on wheels, over a pathway and uh, go four or five kilometers an hour, get two or three miles an hour, uh, just your own little walking speed. And as you drag your 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 suitcase over, it plays unprocessed or the uh, roll out the barrel song. Well, a lot of the barrel today. Yeah, cool. Singer, as you can see. That's I thought like see. something from Munich for sure, particularly with the Oktoberfest that and all the uh, their famous kind of beer halls and and that kind of thing, you know. And 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 I think some of our first uh, interactions was I think at one time at the at the Tinnitus uh, meeting in Iowa. But 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 probably the place we got to know each other a little more was when we were all partners in the Hearing Health and Technology Matters group. There were nine of us uh, that were all involved in that. Many of us had our own little blogs and so on and. Yours is still going and going rather well, uh, but uh, HHTM has been kind of a, a part of all of us uh, at one time or another. Oh, most definitely. I I, I do thank HHTM, hearing law, hearing HHTM, hearing health matters, hearing health and technology matters. That's what you have to ask for. Um, but it's HHTM.org. You can get to that. Uh, but every week, or in my case, I've slowed down a little bit. I apologize every month. Uh, I have another contribution, uh, but there are contributions about busy issues. Uh, Gail Hanlon has written wonderful articles about what it's like to be a consumer of hearing aids. Um, I, I, of course, have one called Ear to Music, which is all about music and music-related things. Um, there are historical articles in there. There's current events uh, in our hearing aid industry at ejjm.org. Uh, it's it's a wonderful organization, and for years, every week we come out with a new blog, um, and 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 they still is still going strong today. And you can subscribe to that through our RSS feed, and it'll come to your inbox uh, weekly. With in many cases new blogs, there was also a review of many hot patents that um, are found in a field. Uh, just so many different aspects that people build on. You know and. And uh, when when we decided to move on from ownership there, uh, Governor Levy has uh, taken that uh, that HHTM to a new level as well. 
and also added that this week in hearing component to it, which which I think kind of uh, brings things into almost a new, almost a a different component of the new century. But you know, Holly had Holly Hotspur Dunn, uh, who hustled all of us to kind of put put this together. I think did a fabulous job of uh, organizing this and that. Of course, Wayne Staub was involved with that as well. And uh, now, um, now I uh, understand that that this uh, tells us. Can you tell us a little bit about the tinnitus? Uh, not the tinnitus, but the temporary threshold shift application that you uh, set up with uh, that you have organized. About ten years ago, I I, I thought of the concept that wouldn't it be interesting instead of to, to be able to measure a TTS, a temporary threshold shift, some. Now, of course, the practicality, you have your hearing tested, you have to go away someplace to have some music or some noise exposure, and very quickly after, have your hearing tested the second time, and the difference between the first and second time being a measure of your temporary threshold shift. I thought, well, wouldn't it be nice to have an app for that? And so I developed an app called Temporary Threshold, Temporary Hearing Loss Test app, and it's available both in Android and iOS. Although I must admit, currently, uh, it, uh, there's a there's a glitch in the back background uh, programming of it um, that I, I have to I have to re- redo it and, and update. It's only working on the older uh, um, operating systems now. It's not uh, unfortunately currently available, but that will change shortly. But the idea behind it is that you listen to your phone and you uh, play a six thousand hertz signal, either, either to earphones or in, in just normal in the, with the loudspeaker in a certain location. And you reduce the volume until you, it's no longer audible. So you find your threshold of hearing before at 6,000 hertz. Then you go and do whatever it is that's noisy, musically or otherwise. And then you come back and you hit a button that says test hearing again. And the same 6,000 hertz uh, signal comes off. And you can reduce it with a little sphere that you hand drag with your finger. And you find the softer sound. And then it calculates the difference between the before and the after in a measure of TTS. Now, temporary threshold shift is not necessarily, is not actually, I shouldn't say necessarily, is not an indicator of permanent threshold shift. I know that people throughout the 1970s and 80s, such as Jackson Ward, had spent their entire lives, academic lives, trying to find a relationship between temporary hearing shift, temporary hearing loss that we all experience from time to time, and future permanent hearing loss. There is no known relationship. Um, but one thing that we did find is that in order to have a permanent hearing loss down the line, you have had to have had some temporary hearing loss before at some point. So it can be used only in that sense, that it has to be a precursor, not necessarily a predictor of. And so if we found with this TTS app, the temporary hearing loss test app, that there was no measurable and no significant TTS, then you knew that that location was not potentially damaging. You didn't have the maximum dose. It means, of course, you have to watch yourself for the rest of the week. And if you did go to a rock concert on Friday night, that's cool. Enjoy it thoroughly. Just don't load your lawn on Saturday or Sunday. You're going to get someone else to do it for you. But if you did have significant uh, amounts of temporary threshold shift, that was an interview that next time you're in that environment, you should be wearing hearing protection. And then it links back to our Musicians Clinics.com website to give you certain strategies to protect your hearing loss going forward. Well, I think that would be quite quite helpful to young musicians as they 
as they begin some of their career, as well as some of the seasoned veterans. Um, now, as, as we begin to kind of wind down our discussion here, Marshall, um, how do you see the future of the profession? Maybe not just in Canada, but, but the profession as a general overall view. I'm actually very, very positive about our profession. I, I know I've been in it for over 40 years. Um, so um, I think that I'd be a little bit jaded here and there. And there are certain things that can uh, be a little bit problematical, uh, such as the advent of over-the-counter hearing aids uh, that m- many audiologists, in order to make their rent and their salary, have had to refer to dispensing hearing aids as well or uh, other accessories. And there are other financial pressures that probably would not as they have an issue years and years and years ago. But I think that audiology is such a wonderful place to be because it's at the crossroads of engineering, mathematics, linguistics, psychology, perception. Um, um, there, there, there's not one field I can, I can think of really where audiology doesn't touch upon. I think people with a degree or training in audiology do so many things. I've done quite a bit of forensic work, for example, where I'm using much of what I learned in audiology 101. I still run a, a full clinic. I have full offices, and I'm very busy with uh, seeing patients. I, there's something about seeing a patient, uh, deluding a kid into stopping uh, crying so that you can do a, a full auditory test so they'll be happier about it and maybe want to back uh, the follow-up you know, three, four, five weeks later. Um, I, I, I like working with musicians. I do see my share of non-musicians as well. And, I, and the reality of the situation is that I've got to see my share of other people in order to pay the bill so that I can see the musician. Um, you, you do spend an inordinate or just a proportionate amount of time working with musicians, but it's worth it. And someone's got to do it. And um, I would say that how I view a musician or how I work with a musician um, can really only be made possible because I know everything I know from audiology and from, from how I was trained. So I, I see the future of audiology as very positive. I think the schools of audiology, at least in Canada, are well subscribed to. It's very difficult to get into these, these uh, fields. I think that the majority of people that do graduate work for many, many years in this field, and they're very happy about it, and they want to go to work at the end of a long day. With me, I, it's 40 years later. Plus, four years later, I still enjoy going to work every single day and and, and patients. Yeah, I think that's the thing I miss the most about uh, about patients is that uh, not only do you you see the, the the easy patients, but you see the difficult ones, you see the ones in the middle, and you see the whole the whole future of everything. And uh, anyway, I, um, I I I certainly want to want to thank you for being with us today, Marshall. Uh, and enlightening us on on how a mathematician and a linguist can actually uh, teach us a lot about how to maybe work with musicians, but in addition to working with our regular patients. So, uh, again, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, this week, uh, my guest has been Dr. Marshall Chazen, audiologist at the Musicians Clinics of Canada. And also a columnist in the Hearing Review, HHTM, and a number of other places. 
Uh, I would encourage you to review some of his materials because they can enlighten all of us. Thank you for being with us today. And uh, thank you, Marshall, for being with us at This Week in Hearing. Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice day.